everyone. It's good to be with you in this space. I want to say thanks to my friend and pastoral colleague Scott for uh, helping um, guide us into the, the space that we needed to hold today, to the musicians for uh, doing the same. I think Karen would have loved the music this morning, would have loved to see all of you. And I don't know how it works. Maybe she is loving it. Maybe she is experiencing this in some way. Um, I'm excited to be continuing in our fall formation series uh, based on Rich Villadis' book, The Deeply Formed Life. Last Sunday, I, uh, I tried to offer a fairly robust, comprehensive introduction, overview to the book, to Villadis himself, to why we're engaging this material, and why now. And uh, if you missed it, you may want to catch up via the podcast. I'm not going to repeat too much of that today. I just want to remind us briefly of the big picture. So this next slide kind of gives us the five areas. It says there, the deeply formed life lays out a fresh vision for spiritual breakthrough following five key values. Contemplative rhythms for an exhausted life, racial justice for a divided time, interior examination for a world living on the surface, sexual wholeness for a culture that splits bodies from souls, and missional presence for a distracted and disengaged people. So that's where we're going over the next nine weeks, today inclusive, and where we're going today and for next week is this, this topic, contemplative rhythms for an exhausted life. So today is gonna to be a framing, a teaching, a bit of a why, and a hint toward the how, and next week we're going to get into some deeply formed practices for contemplative rhythms. So Villadis opens the chapter with the story of an American doctor named John Harvey Gerdner, who in 1901 coined the term New York-itis. New York-itis describes an illness that has symptoms like edginess, quick movements, and impulsiveness. At the time, Dr. Gerdner said it was, quote, a disease which affects a large percentage of the inhabitants of Manhattan Island. And here's how Villadis responded. He said, as a native New Yorker, I can't help but laugh and also gasp at these words. I laugh because Gerdner is describing a world long gone, a world without the internet, high-speed cars, and other technological advances that inform everything we do. I gasp, however, because if New York-itis is what Gerdner observed more than 100 years ago, where does that leave us today? This doctor put his finger on something in 1901 that captured the dangerous pace at which we often unwittingly live. Things have not slowed down. We keep going faster and busier. We, we keep being reminded that this is not the rate of speed our souls we're made for. We're out of rhythm. Where people have too much to do and not enough time to do it. Rich tells a great story that I want to share with you using his words, so straight from the book. And here's a photo of Rich so you can picture him telling it. What a good looking dude, hey? So he says, recently on a Saturday morning, I was walking through my neighborhood, and as I neared my apartment building, an older man frantically shouted across the street, Are you Jewish? He waved his hands at me as if he had been stranded on a deserted island and I was his ticket back to civilization. He repeated again as he drew closer, are you Jewish? 
This is a strange question, but it occurred to me that I'd been growing out my beard, so that might explain the question. I responded a bit too loudly for an early Saturday morning. No, I'm Puerto Rican. Okay, great, he said as he tried to catch his breath, wiping sweat from his forehead. I need your help. I have to get my 90-year-old mother downstairs. It was a slow morning for me, so with curiosity, I followed him into his apartment building. When we got to the elevator, he pointed at the buttons while distractedly looking in the other direction. Press six, please, he said. Another strange moment, but I willingly did so. On the ride up, we exchanged names and then awkwardly stared at the numbers. His breathing was heavy and labored. I looked at him from the corner of my eye to see him talking under his breath. We took the elevator up six stories. Then, as he was about to step into his small apartment, he shouted, Ma, Rich is here. His mother shouted back with irritation, Who's Rich? This was quite a New York moment. I stepped in and saw a frail, well-dressed elderly woman grasping her walker. She had on a large pearl necklace and heels that looked a bit too big for her. With exasperation, she grumbled things like, I'm so busy. There's never enough time. And how am I going to finish everything? Soon I found out that this mom and son duo were heading to the local synagogue, but that he couldn't press the elevator button due to Sabbath prohibitions. All he wanted me to do was press the elevator button. Nothing more, nothing less. I look back at that moment and chuckle. But what struck me most in this whole encounter was that this elderly woman was stressed out because of the fullness of her life. Here she was, overwhelmed on the Sabbath of all days, with too much to do at 90 years of age. New York-itis is alive and well. And of course, this illness is not exclusive to New York. We see it everywhere, we see it every day. It could easily be called Vancouveritis. This, this near-burnout feeling the destructive, non-sustainable pace, the lack of margin, all of this has become truly debilitating. We are worn out. And the problem, as Villetus puts it, is not just the frenetic pace we live at, but what gets pushed out as a result, namely, life with God. Parker Palmer says, burnout doesn't typically happen because we've given so much that we have nothing left. Instead, he says, it merely reveals the nothingness from which I was trying to give in the first place. Wow, right? Also, maybe, ouch. What if we could find a different pace? What would that look like? What if there were a rhythm of life that could instead enable us to deeply connect with God, a lifestyle not dominated by hurry and exhaustion, but by margin and joy? I don't know how that sentence lands on you. Those are Rich's words, margin and joy. But when's the last time you responded to someone who asked how you're doing? By saying, I'm just really great. You know, there's, my life has so much margin and joy in it right now. I'm truly content with the pace I'm living at. Villadas says, as long as we remain enslaved to a culture of speed, superficiality, and distraction, we will not be the people God longs for us to be. We desperately need a spirituality that roots us in a different way. And it doesn't seem to matter what sort of phase of life we're in or what profession we're in. The struggle is real for pretty much all of us. Single parents, 
or even dual parents just trying to find a moment of oasis from the incessant bickering of children, medical professionals caught in the unending pressures of life and death choices, to say nothing of our current unique pressures, pastors over-functioning to the point of breakdown, school teachers whose work never really seems to come to an end, sleep-deprived students floundering through exams and papers, immigrant small business owners struggling to make ends meet, performing artists and other creatives whose livelihood has been completely turned upside down by COVID, therapists, social workers overwhelmed with the bottomless crises they need to attend to on the daily. The pace of our lives can be brutal. And these realities can't be denied. These are real things we need to live through. But without doing so, I believe we're being invited into a different way of being in the world. The late Japanese theologian Kosuke Koyama wrote a book called Three Mile an Hour God. Three Mile an Hour God. Dr. Koyama wanted to convey that if we want to connect with God, we'd be wise to travel at God's speed. His conviction is that God has literally all the time in the world. And because that's true, God is not in a rush. Kayama's claim that God travels at three miles an hour is not a haphazard number. Humans, on average, walk at about that pace. And it tends to be in those unhurried, leisurely, wandering around moments that we often encounter God. So this crisis of speed, distraction, superficial spirituality is leading many to rediscover the contemplative life. So I'm among those who thinks it's high time we learn from the monastery. We need the treasures of monastic imagination. So how might we recover such an imagination? Am I saying we all need to become monks? I am not. I am saying I believe we all need to become mystics. What do I mean? Here's one definition that's helped me from Henry Nouwen. To live a life that is not dominated by the desire to be relevant, but is instead safely anchored in the knowledge, knowledge of God's first love, the unconditional and unlimited love that John reveals when he says, let us love because God first loved us. We have to be mystics. A mystic is a person whose identity is deeply rooted in God's first love. First John 4, let us love because God first loved us. Let us love because the source of love, the basis of love, the origin of love, the fount, the spring, the cradle, the womb, the starting place, the home of love is God. So to be a mystic, to put it in another way, is to be tenaciously tethered to that awareness. This is the heart of what it means to recover a monastic imagination. I want to say whatever language we use for it, mystic, monastic imagination, contemplative practice is secondary. At the same time, however, I believe with Villadas that it's crucial we begin to learn the language to discover the pathways and rhythms that have sustained so many of our spiritual ancestors. Why? Well, besides the reasons we've already been naming, the unlivable pace of our lives, the incessant lure of distraction, and the constant threat of being shallowly formed, here's another. 
there is a vast Christian history that existed before and outside of the colonial West that we desperately need to rediscover. It's part of the work of decolonization that I'm coming to believe everyone who calls Jesus Lord needs to do. I love what philosopher and writer James K.A. Smith tweeted not long ago. Your periodic reminder that evangelicalism does not equal the church, in scare quotes. To imagine that leaving evangelicalism means no longer being a Christian is only to repeat the parochialism, narrow view, yeah, of your evangelical background. What if the Christianities they've hidden from you are where life is found? What if, indeed, friends, there are treasures of spiritual formation that existed prior to evangelicalism and long before the Reformation? They're even rooted in scripture, which we'll say more about shortly. So searching for these contemplative treasures that predated colonialism, finding the life that's in them, while at the same time calling colonialism, wow, calling and colonialism should never be put together as a pair of words to be said at the same time, right back to back. So we call this thing to account. So we search for these treasures that predated and we call it to account and that can free those of us who are deconstructing from the temptation to, as Sarah Bessie put it a few weeks back, to put it, just burn it all down without rebuilding anything at all. Hope that made sense. So we search for these treasures, we decolonize, and that helps us to not just chuck it all. We rebuild on a foundation that preexisted. A lot of things that are wrong with Christianity today. So I don't know who needed to hear that today, but there you have it. I see decolonization and the recovery of contemplative rhythms as two sides of the same coin. Villata summarizes in this way. Monastic spirituality means slowing down our lives to be with God. In a world that operates at a frenetic pace and with the addiction of achievement, slowing down brings us to a place of centeredness and stillness before God. It gives us the opportunity to be present to God throughout the day. So the next part the author looks at may be familiar language to some of us, but I'm guessing not everyone. He calls it practicing the presence of God. This idea of being present to God throughout the day was popularized by a guy called Brother Lawrence. Brother Lawrence was a 17th century Carmelite monk who wrote a famous book called The Practice of the Presence of God. The concept is easy enough to understand. It's one sentence can say it. In every activity in which you are engaged, remember that God is present and offer your heart to him in prayer. Washing the dishes, writing a paper, walking to work, watching the whitecaps play, we are to be present to God. Easy peasy, right? Well, so I look at my life and I talk to others, I actually think being present to God is one of the hardest things to do. Now, some of us might be thinking, dude, it's one thing to be Brother Lawrence practicing the presence, to have a structure and rhythm held by a monastic order. He had fixed hours of prayer. He could pray regularly in community, in solitude. His whole life was patterned in a way that made communion with God second nature. This guy 
wrote his little book from a position of unparalleled contemplative power and privilege. But I don't live in a monastery. How many of you were thinking all that? Pretty much? Spot on. It's true. You don't. Neither do I. Even so, I'm confident that many of us can resonate with what Villadas found to be true in his own life. He said, I've discovered that any effort, any effort given to ordering my life around rhythms of silence, solitude, and prayer has significantly enriched my life. I feel as though our community has been a safe space for contemplative imagination and practice. That said, there are several new folk among us, and it's possible that for some of us, words like monastic, mystic, might carry both cultural baggage and theological misunderstanding. So if that's you, I don't want you to miss the richness, the many gifts offered through this tradition. So I want to just give a few minutes giving a bit of a thumbnail sketch of the biblical and historical roots of monastic imagination. My hope is that increasing numbers of us might be willing to open ourselves to it. Now, there's a lot, of course, to formal monastic life, like vows of poverty and celibacy that we're not going to touch on today. With help from Villadas, I just want to highlight the distinctives of prayer and silence and solitude. So, some monastic moments in scripture. Although we might have missed it, I think the monastic life is rooted deeply in the biblical story. The word monk is from the Greek word monokos, which means solitary. There are many scriptural examples of people who lived a life shaped by solitude and silence and a slowed down spirituality. So let's look at just a few. Moses was a man of the desert. While early on he had been molded in the ways of Egypt, he was gripped by the oppression of the Jewish people and he tragically took matters into his own hands. In a moment of justice-fueled anger, he murdered an Egyptian and fled into the desert. For 40 years, his whole existence was marked by silence and solitude. What would that have been like? No car, no crowds, no social media following. Day in and day out, Moses spent hours in silence watching over animals. Scripture doesn't detail his spiritual practices, but it's telling that God chose to reveal God's self to Moses in the silence of a burning bush. Consider David, the so-called man after God's own heart, who, not being perfect, of course, was also shaped in monasticism. Many of the Psalms David wrote emerged from a place of prayer in solitude. David was a contemplative man of silence. We're familiar with Psalm 27, in which David wrote, One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. David's life as a young man was one of stillness. Certainly, his young years were also marked by sheep shearing, songwriting, and fighting giants, lions, and bears. But even in chaos and unpredictability, he guarded the stillness to prioritize God's presence. The songs he wrote all flowed from a context of monastic rhythm. David wrote psalms about quieting his soul, 131, making his soul wait in silence, 62, being still and knowing that God is God, 46. The psalms as a whole, as we've often said, are the prayer book of the Bible, 
And I don't think it would be an overstatement to say that the prayers we find in Scripture all spring from a deep well of contemplation and reflection. Mary, Mary, is a young woman who was formed by these impulses as well. When the angel Gabriel offered her good news from God, Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Mary was one who beheld the Lord in stillness and solitude. She listened to the word of God carefully, intently, allowing herself to be formed by it. She entered into meditation, pondering the sheer absurdity of the angel's message and marveling at the astonishing invitation it contained. Mary was given to depth of thought, opening her entire being physically and spiritually to the God who visited her in grace. John the Baptist, a prophet who spent much of his life in the wilderness, in solitude. He was a man given to prayer and silence and strange eating habits. John cultivated life with God in the wilderness, and it was out of that place that he offered powerful words from God's heart to prepare the way of the Lord for a people who had gone astray. And of course, Jesus, Son of God, Son of Man, I share Villadas' conviction that Jesus cannot be truthfully understood apart from his deep commitment to a monastic kind of life. We often see Jesus preaching, teaching, healing, casting out demons, and much more, but his life would be self-contradicting apart from the long hours spent with the Father in silence and solitude. One could make a strong case that the fully human Jesus was able to live the life he did because of the constant time and energy being put into uh, time with the Father in prayer. In Luke's Gospel, after Jesus was baptized, the voice of the Father broke through the sky, saying, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Immediately after, Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness being tempted by the evil one. Alone and in the setting of the desert, Jesus encountered Satan and refused to be identified by anything other than the affirmation of the Father. And it was after this grueling battle that Jesus returned to civilization and recited, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. Some concluding words. Over and over in the Gospels, Jesus conveys the power of God, and then he returns to be in communion with the God from whom that power flows. Concluding words from Villadus of that section. Got a little bit to go. So that's biblical history. What about right after biblical history? We'll call this section monasticism in the early centuries, or Constantine was a huge bummer, you guys. Beyond the pages of scripture, monastic imagination was alive and well in the early history of the church. In the first and second century post-resurrection, women, women and men would flee to the desert to be with God for a bunch of reasons. The early desert fathers and mothers were people who felt a strong call to prayer and solitude and silence and fasting. It's hard to know who first started this way of following Jesus. But one of the most compelling explanations for the emergence of monastic life came as a result of Christian discipleship losing its radical edge. Remember, 
that for the first few centuries, Christianity was a marginalized and persecuted religion. The book of Acts describes the resistance and cost one experienced for being a follower of Jesus. Early on, however, the dangers of confessing Christ as Lord and King didn't seem to matter. Christianity spread like wildfire. Followers of the way of, the, of Jesus were people on the edges of society, proclaiming the radical message of the kingdom of God, serving the poor, healing the sick, and subverting the way of the empire. But something shifted in the cultural landscape in the fourth century, leaving devout Christians with an important decision on how they would live. On the eve of a battle in the early part of the century, Constantine, who would become emperor of Rome, claimed to have had a revelation. In the revelation, Constantine said he was instructed to place a Christian symbol on the shields of his soldiers. Church historian Justo Gonzalez explained, Constantine ordered that his soldiers should use on their shield and on their standard, or labarum, a symbol that looked like the superimposition of the Greek letters ki and rho. Since these are the first two letters of the name Christ, this could well have been a Christian symbol. This is the image. You've probably seen it before. Having done so, Constantine achieved victory over his enemies and in turn transformed the way the empire related to Christians. In a sweeping turn of events, Christianity went from persecuted religion to friend of the empire. Because of this, for many Christians, a different kind of faith crisis surfaced. Gonzalez again. The narrow gate of which Jesus had spoken had become so wide that countless multitudes were hurrying through it many seeming to do so only in pursuit of privilege and position, without caring to delve too deeply into the meaning of Christian baptism and life under the cross. This was a drastic cultural shift within Christianity, to say the very least. We're still feeling the repercussions. No longer did people enter into life with God and the church by renouncing the systems of the world, but by appropriating them through political and cultural power. It was in this context that women and men decided to take up their cross and head into the deserts. No longer was there a significant price to pay to follow Jesus. No longer was there a clear and powerful delineation between Christianity and conformity to the political ways of the world. Constantine was a huge bummer. In order to resist the temptations of worldly power, people went into the desert then to maintain a cruciform life marked by prayer, renunciation, and deep formation. Villitus once more. It's a long two-slide quote here. The genesis of monastic life in a post-Constantine world in the fourth century serves as a powerful reminder for us today. In short, the way of worldly power, values, and priorities can easily take precedence in our lives with Christianity being either complicit in the perpetuation of the world system or irrelevant in the social landscape. There is need for a third way. The desert fathers and mothers and later monastics remind us that the way of following Jesus requires a steadfast refusal to get caught up in the pace, power, and priorities of the world around us. We're called to have our lives shaped by a different kind of power, pace, and priorities. 
offered to us by God. So, what might it look like to have our lives shaped in this way, to answer that call? Where have we been? Where are we going? In the wake of New York-itis, Vancouver-itis, all the trappings of our wildly out-of-rhythm culture, I've tried to make a case that we need to find our rhythm again, and that this can happen through a recovery of monastic imagination, through contemplative practice. I've offered a short biblical historical sketch to show both that the roots of this imagination emerge from Scripture itself, and that while a significant uprooting happened with Constantine, the roots are still there. They're still there. They're traceable, and they're growing. So next Sunday, we're going to look at, we're going to experience together some deeply formed practices of contemplative rhythms. But for today, I want to leave you with an assignment. There's a sheet of paper, hopefully on most of your seats. We will find a way to link and download that through the social channels this week as well. But if you have that, you're welcome to have a look at it. This is a pre-practice to get ready for next week. It's a sort of virtual trip to the desert. Optional, of course, but encouraged. And so as we look at this handout, we've simply called it Barriers to Receptivity to God. So 1 John 4, right? A mystic is to be one who is rooted, grounded in that sense of being loved by God, but there are barriers that we encounter. So we want this desire. We're learning to trust that the Spirit will be with us. But we recognize the second paragraph on your sheet, that the challenge of growing toward greater openness brings us face to face with our own need for healing. What hinders our deep listening to God? What can we pay attention to that would invite God's healing to bear on our ability to listen deeply to ourselves, to God, and to others? Our actual responses to God, to ourselves, and to others give us some clues as to the areas where we might grow toward increasing receptivity. So this is not exhaustive, um, this list, but it, it may be more exhaustive than you kind of considered before. So if you have some moments to carve out this week with a journal, um, some silence and some solitude, here's some possible distractions. Perhaps there's an element of pride. Perhaps there are fears present, unresolved issues and inner conflict. And then on the reverse, once you've sat with that list a little bit, you're guided through a reflection to consider the barriers that might, be exist, might exist for you, one, one or two that stand out the most prominently. You sit with it, and you recall how you feel when you notice it, and answer, what comes to me about the roots of this barrier? What lies beneath it? Third question, what do I want to say to Jesus about this barrier? What do I desire? And then you take time to listen gently. How do I sense Jesus wants to be with me right now? What might he want to say, reveal, or do? So I offer that as um, a gentle encouragement uh, to sit with this week at some point, and next week we'll come in and we'll do some more practices that will hopefully guide us into more deep formation in this area.